0: And so I do trust you have your Bibles or your scripture journals there. If you want to use the Pew Bible, you could open it to page 940 and follow along there. I'm going to be reading Romans chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 1 just to put everything in context. I'm going to start at verse 1 and read down through verse 11. And so God's inspired and inerrant and sufficient word reads, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another... You condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality and immorality, immortality, excuse me, immortality, uh, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Father, we just ask a blessing upon the reading of your word, and Father, now as we Listen for your spirit, Father, I pray that your spirit would illuminate this text for us, not only that we know how to understand it, but how we also know to apply it. And Father, you speak through your scriptures, and so we ask, Lord, that you would speak, your servants are listening. I pray in the name of Jesus, amen. I've titled this this morning, Thinking is for Doing. In 1890, William James wrote the first textbook on psychology titled The Principle of Psychology. In it, he wrote this, my thinking is first, last, and always for sake of my doing. I recently read a book uh, uh, that was written this year by Daniel Pink. And it was titled The Power of Regret with a subtitle, How Looking Backwards, moves us forward. Walt, uh, not Walter, uh, it's um, Daniel Pink, The Power of Regret. I would highly recommend that book for, for everyone to read. But in it, uh, Pink, he distills this quote down to simply, thinking is for doing. In reading this book, and reading this quote, it, it resonates with me. As someone who is a bit introspective, contemplative, the, the thoughtfulness, the thinking, it may come a bit easier For me, it may come a bit easier, but the doing, maybe not so much. What good is it to have it all figured out and do nothing with it? Conversely, what good is it to always be doing without knowing why? I mean, just to be doing seemingly without any purpose, just because we have this understanding, spiritually speaking, that we should be doing something, but we don't necessarily have a reason or know why we're actually doing it. So both of them, I guess we could say, is a, is a ditch on the side of the road. Um, and so we want to be careful of both of those. And I believe both of these aspects are true in our, in our personal life and, and also true in our spiritual life. Knowledge. Knowledge. I could certainly fall into this trap where it's all about learning, where it's all about studying, where it's all about reading, where it's all about learning. It's all about a system. It's all about a theological framework on which everything hangs upon. But if I do nothing with it, it's pointless. And again, if all I do and think is about doing, 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 and have no framework to hang that upon... I may be no different than a humanist, no different than, than any good moral person who wants to help out humanity. We need both aspects come together. And that's what we're going to look at a little bit this morning, I think. And I only have really two points, three points in the outline, but really two major points. And the first is the principle, and then the second will be the application. Quite simple, right? The principle and then the application. And so as we think about principle, What does that mean? How do we define that? And I had some interesting definitions, but I just stuck with the the one um, that seems to sum it up quite well. And the principle is simply this. It's a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior. So it's this system, it's this foundation of beliefs that we have. And every single one of us functions in some principle. Jordan Peterson wrote a very famous book, if you're aware of him, which I'm sure you are. He wrote a very famous book that said rules, I think it was 12 rules for life. Well, I mean, that's nothing more than principles. He's establishing principles for life. And that's all it means is to have principles. And here in verse 6 of our text here this morning Paul states the principle. Paul states the principle not by using something that he came up with himself, but he does it and he did it by reciting Psalm 62, verse 12. God, our text says, who points back to God, who is being referred to here, uh, verse 10. But who who will render? to each person according to his deeds. These, this is the principle, and I might also say this, this, this paragraph that we're using here this morning, verse, 11, verse 6 through verse 11. Verse 6 and verse 11 is the whole point. And the center here is what Paul will be developing a little bit, but the whole point of this passage right here is verse 6 and verse 11. So you put those two together, and you've got it. It's the principle, who will render to each person according to his deeds, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. That right there is the principle that Paul is establishing here for us this morning. And under the principle here, just taking verse 6, I'm going to break it down into three parts. First is, who will render? It's the certainty. It is the certainty of the principle, and it's who will render. Indeed, this will happen. Who will render? And also, I want you to understand, well, maybe first, this word render. Now, this word render, in fact, your translation may have it as as payback or repay or something like that because it is a monetary, it is a transactional thing. You are being paid for goods, sold or services provided or things that you have done. It is certainly in that in that vein. It's, a, it's to reward or punish based upon a person or what a person deserves. And we like the word deserve today. We hear so many people talk about it and use the word deserve. I deserve this. I deserve that. We deserve all kinds of things. And here Paul is saying, yes, indeed you do. And God will pay back The things that you deserve. But the other thing I want you to notice is that this is future tense. This is future tense. This isn't necessarily for the here and the now, though to some extent it certainly is. But what Paul is referring to is eschatological. It's end time stuff. It is for the future. And the second thing that I want you to see in the principle, and that is the universality of this principle to each person. To each person, each is every single person. No one is left out. No everyone is included. No one is excluded. Every single person will be, will be, will, will function and does function under this principle. Jesus here uh, speaks of that as we come on to the, the, the third, that would be the criterion, and that is according to his deeds. So it's according to the deeds that each and every person has done, right? And so that, that's the principle. The principle is there's a certainty of it. There's a principle that it's, it's for every single one. And the other principle is that the, the, the criterion or, or the, 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 how that's going to be handed down is according to his purposes, according to his deeds that they were done. And that's how God will hand down these deeds or these rewards if you will use that. And when Jesus was speaking of his return, and Jesus was talking about when he, you know, he talked about this before his death, right before his death, that he will return. And when Jesus was talking about that, he was also talking about his return. And in Mark chapter 13, verse 34, he has this to say, he said, it is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be leaving, and I'm going to be assigning a task for each and every slave, for each and every doulos, for each and every servant, for each and every person. I'm going to assign them a responsibility. I'm going to assign them a list of duties. I'm going to give them something to do. And just as they, we too, have a task to be done. It is something that I hear from so many people, broadly speaking. We're all saying, what is my purpose? We think about our seniors. We think about those who are graduating. We think about those who are in college or may not go to college, whatever it is. What am I going to do after high school? What am I going to do after college? All these questions come up. We're seeking purpose, and for good reason, because God has given us a task. God has given a purpose. And I am often think about this even within a church context. As we think about tasks that need done within the church. There are those who, who thank you for that. And they're so faithful. And this needs to be done. So I will do it. And there's others that when, you, when, when they're in that position. In in and in that volunteer position. They just click. Right? Because it's just how God wired them. How God designed them to function. And God desired them to work. And so we too have a job to do. We have been created on purpose and for a purpose. I say that all the time. We have been created on purpose and for a purpose. Now listen, what Paul is speaking of here is how we fulfill our purpose. This is not salvific, this is not soteriology, it is eschatology. So what Paul is saying here is how you fulfill your purpose does matter. How you fulfill your purpose does matter. God has gifted each and every one of us in a certain way, and God has given each and every one of us a task to fulfill. And how we are faithful to that task does matter. It matters. First Corinthians chapter three, verse eight. Paul says, "He who plants, and he who waters are one, but each one, each one, will receive his own reward according to his labor. Couple things we need to understand here. Number, you all understand that I don't. I'm not a very good gardener or farmer. But when you plant, do you expect to harvest immediately? No. Some people are good planters, some people are good waterers, though I think in our context they kind of go together. But the point that Paul is making, each one has a separate and a certain task to do. And the other thing that Paul is saying here is that the harvest isn't immediately. There is a future time that it is coming. He says it right here. He who plants, he who waters are one, but each one will do it according to his own reward, according to his own labor. So at the harvest, what is planted, what is taken care of, will be harvested. And as we continue to flush this out a little bit uh, this morning, I want to remind you, or I want to point out to you that Jesus also cites Psalm 62, verse 12. In fact, he does it, he does it in Matthew chapter 16. And in Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 24, and Jesus has this to say his, to his disciples, because again, Jesus is foretelling his death. And in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 24, he says this. If anyone wishes to come after me, words that are very familiar to us. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must what? He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For if you wish to save your life, you will lose your life. And if you lose your life, you will gain your life is what Jesus is saying. Gets down to verse 27. For, carries forward what was just said, for the Son of Man is going to come. Again, we see it in the affirmative, the certainty of it. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And here he quotes, will then repay every man according to his deeds. This is the certainty, and this is also a future thing. The first thing that Jesus is asking of the disciples is that they must be sold out to the task that they have been given. They must be sort of, you must pick up your cross, you must deny yourself and fulfill the task that I have given you to do. This is, this, this is end time stuff. Let's use that word. This is end time stuff. And, we, 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 you know, I find it interesting sometimes there's those who really get caught up in eschatology and end time stuff about how does America fit into the revelation, it doesn't. And, and how, do, how does some of these things fit in? And it, it doesn't necessarily. But right here, right here, we're going to see the importance of end times. And I want to go to Revelation chapter 20. I want to go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Because here we're going to, we're going to see what Paul is speaking about here. I mean, the Bible, it's one, uh, the, the, the continuity is there. It, 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 says, it, it reaffirms itself as Scripture interprets Scripture. I mean, we're studying through Romans, but we're touching all of Scripture. And I want to show you that here this morning. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And here as John records what he was given, it says this in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne. And I just want to stop there for a moment and think about the great white throne. In the great white throne right here, we have great, it's signifying the power of the throne. We see white, it's the purity. It is the perfection of the throne. And then we see throne itself, and it is the power of the throne. And we see that this is the ultimate judge. This is the Supreme Court. This is the highest court in the land. It is great, it is pure, and it is for this purpose. And him who sat upon it from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away, and no place was found for it, for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. Again, let's just think about the great and the small, the greatest person who ever lived, and the smallest person that nobody has ever heard of. Both will find themselves at this great white throne. And they're standing before the throne. Now listen, and the books were opened plural, the books were opened, and then he continues, and another book was opened. There's there's multiple sets of books here. So you have the books were opened, multiple, and then you have another book, singular, was opened, and John gives definition here, and this is the book of life. Two separate books. This is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written into this book, now listen, according to their deeds. According to the things that have been done. Verse 13, and the sea, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Sea is a place of turbulence, of unrest. And the sea gave up its dead which was in them, and death and Hades gave up the dead which was in them, and they were judged, every one of them, comes again, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, here we get that singular book again, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now commentaries just have a field day trying to figure this little section of, of verses out. In verse, 20, in verse 12, it is my belief that it is speaking, is speaking of those who, who are saved, those who God has indeed chosen to save, And in verse 12 or 13 and 14, it is speaking of those who are not saved. It is speaking of those who have not committed their heart and life to Christ. It's two types of people there, but both will be judged by the books, by the things, the deeds that were done. And both will be judged or will find their location depending upon where their name is written or is not written. We have the book of life. If your name is written in the book of life, you will find yourself in heaven. If your name is not written in the book of life, you will find yourself in hell. That, that, that's a principle. That's what's being taught. And I want to go to verse, uh, Revelation 22, verse 12, and then we'll come back to this. In Revelation 22, verse 12, it tells us the same thing. It's one of the last words that we have in our, in our Bibles Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus says, and my reward is with me. To what? To render to every man according to what he has done. So we have these things that are being toggled back and forth. And what we have here is what it is teaching us in our deeds that are done are indeed rewards and degrees that we have. There are degrees in heaven and there are degrees in hell. You will find some in a hotter place of hell and some in a less hotter place of hell. You will find some in, I don't know where they're going to live, but I hope mine is a beautiful cabin up in the mountains. (laughs) But there's degrees in heaven and hell. That's what Paul is speaking about. What we must understand, what Paul is not teaching here, and we're going to get there, and Paul is not teaching that. We are saved by works. That's heresy. That is not biblical. That is not what Paul is teaching. And yet our works count for something. But it does not count for our final destination. I want to go to Daniel. I want to go one more place while I'm on a roll this morning. I want to go to Daniel chapter 12. You want to hear my views on eschatology? Here you have them. (laughs) I want to go to Daniel chapter 12 verses 1 to 2. And in Daniel chapter twelve, verses one and two, it says this: the second half of Daniel is apocalyptic. So, and here we have it. Um, and now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred. Since there was a nation until the time that at until that time, and at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Verse 2 many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. There will be a resurrection. They will awake these to everlasting life, but to the others, disgrace. In everlasting contentment, this cannot be speaking about a long tribulation because both are raised at the same time, those to everlasting life, and at the same time, those to everlasting contentment. This is what the Bible is teaching. This is what Paul is teaching, and this is what he's teaching. He's teaching basically the basic judicial principle. Lex talionis, we sometimes will hear that comment, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Old Testament teaching, that you cannot perpetrate it. you cannot uh, severely or punish anyone any more or any greater than what you yourself have been afflicted. So if somebody pokes out your eye, you can't poke out that person's both eyes. You can't poke both of that, eyes, both of that person's eyes out. That's how, how we say it like that, right? And if somebody whacks you with the hammer on the finger, why would somebody do that? I don't know where that came from. That happened to me too many times, I guess, as my construction days right? But you can only do to somebody else what they have done to you. Paul is teaching the same principle, but from a New Testament perspective. What we do to others, God will do to us. We have it in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the teaching of the New Testament, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, right? But I say to you. How many times does Jesus say that to us? It it, it is this that Paul is now, and I want to get back to Romans, I promise we'll get back to Romans, but it is this that Paul is now speaking of. It's not necessarily salvific in nature. Paul is assuming that these people are saved. He's speaking to the saved and he's now speaking that are the way we live our life and how we fulfill the task that God has given us does matter. I like what Osborne says in his commentary on Revelation, he says, We are saved by grace, but judged by works. We're saved by grace, but judged not for our final destination, but for the deeds, for our position, for our place, for our status in heaven or hell. Judged by works in that aspect of it. And so let's go now to the application. We see the application of the principle. That's the principle. Principles in verse 6 that God will render to each person according to his deeds. Now let's get to the, principle, or the application of this principle to those in verses 7 through 10. And I should stop right here. And I, and I just want just as a little footnote just maybe for yourself as you read through the Bible and you notice some of these things. Um, what we have here is A-B-B-A. It's a chiasm that you hear, and in, 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 sometimes you'll hear it in Bible studies, where you're saying the same thing. I don't know if I put the definition in your notes or not, just for whatever. But where you're saying the same thing, you're saying one thing, you're saying something else, and then you start for what you just left off, and you say it again. So you're bookending it in the middle. Often what you have is right in the middle of that. It would be A-B-C-B-A, and the C would be the whole point of the chiasm, of the whole point that is being made. That's the importance. He doesn't do that here because he's already given us the importance, and that's verse 6 and verse 11. And so verse 7 and, 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 and 10 are saying the same thing, and verse 8 and 9 are saying the same thing. And so we have first the application for the believer, verses 7 and 10. And Paul says in verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good. And this 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 word here for perseverance, I mean, it's just pretty pretty obvious, is, is it not? It's steadfastness, fortitude, it's endurance. We talk about it often, run the race with endurance. Those types of things. I I love the word perseverance. I, I love the endurance. I'm kind of an endurance guy. I'm kind of like push my body to the limits. And um, I'm going to have to do something like that this summer. It's working up in my brain. I'm not sure what I'll be doing yet. But, but somehow to really test yourself over a long period of time, it's perseverance. It's enduring. It, it, and in the physical sense, and somebody who's warped like me, who pushes your body to the brink, that's not necessarily what is being thought of, but it's in that same context, though, because sometimes we find ourselves there in our spiritual faith, where we are pushed absolutely to the brink. And that's what Paul is saying here, to those who by perseverance in doing good. So you're persevering in doing good, not in the eyes of the culture, but in the eyes of God. So as we think about doing good, good deeds, it's, it's not in the eyes of the culture, but in the eyes of God. And in Luke chapter um, 8. I, I, I got some time. I want to turn there. In Luke chapter 8, it's the parable of the sower. Um, in Luke chapter 8, starting at verse uh, 4, I don't know that I'm going to read all these. Um, we just start at verse 12. We know the story, right? So we have this the parable of the sower, where the sower goes along and he sows some seed. Some of the seed ends up on, on rocky soil, some of the seed ends up on, 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 on soil that doesn't have a lot of topsoil to it. Some of the seed ends up in, in the thickets, in the bushes, some of the seeds end up on fantastic soil. And and, and the parable is that the that the soil, the, the, the seed that landed on the rocky path and came along and the birds attached, it didn't have a chance to sprout. And that, that ended up in the, in the thickets. It, it, it sprouted, but then the thickets overtook it, and they overcame. It, they were overcome, and it's a comparison of the things that Jesus now here says and explains this parable, that those on the road are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word. And those on the rocky soil, jumping out of verse 13, are those who heard received with joy, but they had no firm root because there wasn't any depth to the soil. And they believed for a while, and then they turned away. These were not true believers. And then in time of temptation, they fell away. Then there was a seed that fell in the the thorns, and these are the ones that have heard. And as they go on their way, they're choked with the worries and the riches, the pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But, verse 15, "But but the good soil, but the seed that fell in the good soil, And I might say it takes hard work to have good soil, I'm guessing. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. You see, there is work that comes with it. There is work that comes with bearing good fruit. You see these here in the right before that they found themselves in the thickets. The worries of life choked them out. Nowhere does Jesus say in this parable that they weren't saved. It just tells us here that they bore no fruit. And they will be rewarded for not bearing any fruit. At the great white throne of judgment. But I believe these are ones who are truly saved. These are ones who are just overcome by the trouble of life. I mean, we see that in people at times. We think that someone is authentically and has truly surrendered their heart and life to Christ. And all of a sudden, they kind of go off the rail. I think think Christians can go off the rail at a time without losing their salvation. Because the Bible doesn't teach that you can. But they can go off the rail a little bit. And then eventually they come back. And that is seen at the end of their life. We don't necessarily know this. And I think we have a picture of them right here. But what Jesus is, what we want to know about here is what Jesus is saying, that the ones who have done this hard work, who have done good the soil preparation, who have laid the foundation, who have built the good foundation, these are the ones that are producing the good fruit. And I also want to just pause here for a moment. And, um, and reiterate the fact that Paul is not contradicting himself. Paul is not saying that a person is working for their salvation. Paul is not saying that it's works or that it's faith plus, as some religions teach. You do all these good deeds or you end up in purgatory and somebody does good deeds for you. That's heretical. That's not biblical teaching. You do not work for your salvation. Right here, what we have is perseverance of the saints, if you want to use that language. And it's those who preserve in works, preserve in faith, and that our faith is not from our works, but our faith is from Jesus. Our faith is from Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, two places, I think I have the references in in your notes for you. Both references in Hebrews tells us, just for one reference, and that is that Jesus is the author of our faith. Well, what does it mean to be an author of anything? He's the originator. Jesus is the author of our faith. Hebrews, or Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Will bring it about at completion The coming of the Lord Jesus. He who began, who began the good work in you? You know. Who will bring it about to completion? You know. Our faith, the very faith that we have, has been given to us. Paul in no way is teaching that we can earn our salvation. This is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrestled with so much of his life. And you talk about a flawed man. We don't talk about Martin Luther's flaws often enough. But he was a deeply flawed man. And yet as he wrestled with his faith, as he wrestled with how do I become a good Christian? Through works, as a good monk, that's what he thought. And he came to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, and he's seen from faith to faith. It starts with faith and it ends with faith. And the faith did not come from Martin himself, but came from God himself. See, Paul will tell us in a couple chapters, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Works count for nothing when it comes to your salvation. James chapter 2, verse 18, often something that we hear to refute what Paul is teaching here, but some may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. What is James telling us? If you don't have works, can you prove your faith to anyone? No, we don't know, but God does. It's not not what James is teaching. James is just teaching, look, I can point to my faith because of my works. And James is not saying that because of my works I am saved, but we can look at the fruit of somebody's life, and we can make the assumption that they have faith. But just because we don't see fruit in someone's life doesn't mean they don't have faith. You follow that. We can't discern a person's heart. We can't discern what is in the heart of mind of anyone. That's how we get ourselves in a pickle. And if you remember why, 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 why um, Paul, too many names, why Paul started chapter 2. Because here were people who were criticizing all those bad people of chapter 1. And he's saying, look, you don't know that person's heart. You're making some of these judgment calls. You're, 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 you're making uh, levels of sin or degrees of sin, if you will. And maybe you're not doing this, but you're doing this. See, we don't know what's in a person's heart. We don't know that. We have to be so, so careful. And let's just continue on in verse 7. To those who, by perseverance in doing good, seek for the glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Seek is just to be fully and completely devoted. It is a present. It is active. It is something that is being done in the here and the now. Glory is a future state. We are redeemed. There's redemption. There's sanctification, there's glorification. You hear those three words sometimes? First, we're saved, then we, 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 we work through our Christian life. We're being sanctified. We never reach that full point of glorification until in the eternal life. And so here, this is what Paul is saying. Seek for that glory. Usually, we're not supposed to seek for our own glory, but we're certainly supposed to seek for it as far as, far as our eternal life is concerned. To those in by pers- or, uh, yeah, For those who are in perseverance doing good, seek for the glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. These are the things that we certainly want to do. I have a reference there in your scriptures. I might read this one. So that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter and Paul are saying the exact same thing. There is a glory we seek, and that is that final resting place, if you will. Mortality, well, that's just the state of, of not dying, of not decaying. That's a state of everlasting life. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about that many times where the where the perishing puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortal, right? where there's a time where now we're perishing, but there'll be a time where we'll put on this imperishing, talking about eschatology, talking about the end state, talking about eternal life. It's just to live without an end. The last judgment, Matthew 25, 46, Jesus says this, the righteous into eternal life. This is what Paul here is now speaking about as he's transitioning and as he will continue to transition to this church in Rome that he's talking about. But that's for the believer. There's also an application for the unbeliever in verses 8 and 9. But, and here we see a very distinct word that leaps off the page. But, there's an exception that is now being made. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, selfishly ambitious, those who are just seeking their own desires, seeking their own will, those who are seeking to go their own life, they do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. For them, they'll have wrath, they'll have indignation. Verse 9, there will be tribulation. There will be... This, this is not the tribulation that sometimes some of we want to think about. This, this is the troubles within their life. There will be no peace for this person but distress for every soul of man who does evil. They're selfishly ambitious. Jesus talked about this in Matthew where he talked about separating the sheep from the goats. And I might say this, every single person... Beliefs. Every single person obeys. You either obey the truth or you obey here unrighteousness. The selfishly ambitious find themselves with no peace. They have no peace at all. Thinking is for doing. Jesus, Jesus says, or Paul says here, that it's to the Jew First. And also to the Greek. He says it in 10b and 9b and then in verse 11. To the Jew first and also for the Greek. Well, Why is he, he he's saying to the Jew first and also to the Greek? Why, why is he saying that? We shouldn't think in terms of ethnicity here. We should think in terms of religious and non-religious. And when you think about the religious, when you think about us, When we think about those of us who are here Sunday after Sunday, year after year after year after year, that we sit under the reading, that we sit under the teaching, that we sit under the prayers, that we sit under the the singing, that we sit under the home life of our godly parents, of our godly grandparents, as we sit under that, we, the religious, are most to be accountable we should take great warning in what Paul here is saying. The religious have all the advantages, and with these advantages comes yet a greater responsibility. I don't take James chapter 3 verse whitely, where it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment we will be i will be judged more strictly than someone who does not speak in the pulpit than someone who does not teach a bible class than someone who does not teach a sunday school than someone who has not in any type of religiously leadership role those of us who find ourselves here will be incur a stricter judgment. We should take that extremely serious as we think about what Paul here is saying. Not that we're going to lose our salvation again, but that we will lose our rewards in heaven. And um, I'm going to close with this. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 3. Um, this is an interesting, I've never preached on this passage, and maybe one of these times I will, just so do a brief Outline of it now and we're done. But Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. It it says this. um, It says, Son of man, I I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. Now we must remember Ezekiel is writing this before the cross. We're writing, we're reading it after the cross. And so, Son of Man, I have appointed you watchman over the church, watchman over whatever you may be over, whatever your is in your sphere. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, from the scriptures, New Testament. or After the cross, from the scriptures, God speaks to us through the scriptures. Anything that you hear from my mouth, warn them from me. Now let's go on, verse 18. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from their wicked ways that he may live. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require. At your hand. Why? You didn't warn him. Verse 19. And yet you have warned the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked ways. He shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. You've done your part. You've done your job. You delivered the word that God had given the prophet Ezekiel to give. And again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die since you have not warned him. He shall die in his sins, and his righteous deeds, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. However, if you have warned the righteous that the righteous shall not sin, he does not sin, he shall surely live. Because he took warning in you. And you have delivered him. God has given every single one of us a task. There's not a single person here this morning who can save anyone else. But the application that we need to take away from Ezekiel and the application that we need to take away from Paul here in our text here this morning, that God has assigned us a task. God has assigned us to duty. Again, living after the cross, each man and woman is responsible for their own actions. It is God's job to save. It is our responsibility to warn, to teach, to instruct. It is our responsibility, however that flushes out in your life. And I don't know how that works in your life. I don't know how God has gifted you. I don't know what God has called you to. I I don't know that. But I do pray and trust that the Holy Spirit can reveal that to you. Those things that are drawn to you, those things that give you energy, those things that give you passion. I would offer to you whatever that may be. God has given you that. God has given you that on purpose and for purpose. Are you going to use it as from a selfish ambition or are you going to use it? For God, he will reward you not here in the now. Now but in the life to come. We have been given a job. We have been given a duty. We have been given a task to do as Christian people. And as Jesus said, as a little boy in the temple, it must be about my father's business. We must be about the task that God has given us to do. Father, I... Father, that's what the scripture says. That's what the scripture teaches Your spirit needs to apply it. Father, we know that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And yet each and every one of us will be judged, will be held accountable for what we do with the undeserved gift that we have been given, eternal life. I pray, Lord, that as I, as each and every one of us wrestles with God, I just want to live for you. God, I want to deny myself. I want to pick up my cross. I want to follow you. I want to live for you. Those passions burn within us. Father, would you ignite? Would you open our heart and our mind? And you do so often, Lord. And yet the cares of the world sometimes chokes them out keeps us from living the life that you have created us to live. But as we think about a church setting, as we think about we sit here and and then we leave from this place, we just spend such a small amount of time here. But as we go from this place, the people that we run into, those divine appointments that you have created and and pre-established for us, Help us not to squander those opportunities. Lord, help us to look for ways in which we can use and we can fulfill the gifts and the tasks and the responsibilities that you have given us, that you have saved us to carry out. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.